Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will cover how fixed income investors should think about positioning in consideration of the current environment, along with the risks associated with the asset class, a performance outlook, and more, just to name a few items that we'll cover today. So uh, joining me here on the line, glad to welcome back Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, and we're also very fortunate to have joining us uh, from Putnam Investments two very special guests. They are Bill Coley and Mike Som, co-chief investment officers for fixed income with Putnam. Now, quickly, I do want to point out that last September, uh, Bill Coley announced that he plans to retire this coming June, uh, capping off an impressive 34-year investing career, uh, 27 of those years spent at Putnam. At the time of Bill announcement, Mike Som was appointed co-chief investment officer of fixed income and will assume the role as loan chief investment officer upon Bill's retirement. Uh, Mike has 30 years of industry experience and has been with Putnam uh, working alongside Bill for 23 years. So Bill and Mike, congratulations to you both on what lies ahead in just a couple of months time. It's a pleasure to have you both on the podcast with us today. Uh, Leslie, welcome to you and looking forward to what should be a very timely and productive conversation. Welcome to everyone. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Absolutely. So uh, given the current environment that we're in today, just to name a few realities, so low rates, historically speaking, uh, coupled with improving economic conditions here in the U.S., Mike, Bill, as a starting point from your vantage points, how should investors approach fixed income and what kind of role might the asset class play in a portfolio today? I'll, I'll, I'll take that to start with. Um, Happy Cinco de Mayo, everyone. Uh, I guess, in general, the good news is policy has your back. And the Fed has saved us from the worst-case scenarios in the last two recessions. And it's a powerful support that they've provided, but it really distorts fundamentals. And while it may seem that you can relax a bit more about unknown unknowns, um, there is a price to pay for some of the intervention that we've had and we have yet to pay the tax. And so part of our consideration here is, you know, what are the issues that we have to deal with in terms of the recovery? We see all the growth uh, and, and uh, concerns about inflation, um, but ultimately the debt levels are also uh, extraordinarily high, unless, of course, you're a modern monetary theorist acolyte. Um, so the tonic for you know, such high levels of, of debt usually require either extraordinary growth, you know, think post-World War II, uh, or what is more likely to be the case, you suppress real rates as, as much as you can, and you drive inflation higher. And as debt holders, you know, which is what fixed income is, you're going to bear that tax. That's an inflation tax, and that's something that's just going to be part of the system for a good period of time here. Um, the other part of the tax is you know, our, our, our policy taxes, uh, you can think of, you know, the increases that we'll see in capital gains tax, you know, the beneficiary of a lot of the policy was you know, some of your asset returns uh, were better than they should have been given some of the shock. Um, as well, corporate tax, uh, a lot of corporations benefited from the support from the government. And there's also going to be a, you know, a tax on the wealthy uh, because they're the holders of capital and the capital has been a beneficiary of a lot of that that. Um, policy support, right? And so those are you know, things to consider as you think about where you're going to place your money 
Um, ultimately, as well, these extreme policy framework that's in place right now, super low rates, um, a, a coordinated, for the first time in, in decades, a coordinated fiscal and monetary policy regime that are working together means that at some point rates are going to go higher. And you know, debt itself, you're, you're the biggest contributor to returns uh, for, for uh, debt is generally interest rates, and interest rates are going to be moving against you at some point here, and you're just going to have to weather you know, some of the, uh, the negative consequences of you know, that, that, that sort of move in, in, in policy. Um, and then I just point out one other thing to consider in, 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 as you think about it is all this policy support, in some ways, if the Fed is becoming the risk manager for, for the world, that means that the allocators of capital don't have to be as efficient. And ultimately, that will weigh on productivity in some form or other. Think about zombie firms. Zombie firms can survive if the, if the Fed does what they did uh, last year. And it's very hard to envision how the Fed gets out of the, the, the game of being the ultimate provider of risk management for the markets, even when you think about the next recession. So you know, from our standpoint, at this point, there's a lot of good news priced into risky asset markets. And so you know, the best strategy when you get to this point is diversification. How do you create diversification uh, in your portfolios? Dan, if I can jump in and just add, I, I think that, you know, if you, if you think about the, um, the, the markets in general today, um, you're concerned, as Mike was highlighting, you know, about interest rate risk um, overall, and then, you know, maybe about valuation levels in particularly in the corporate bond market. Um, so I would be looking and thinking about ways of avoiding interest rate risk if possible. So, you know, floating rate products, um, products with short or zero durations, um, and then looking outside of maybe some of the traditional um, corporate asset classes for ways that you might find um, uh, areas where that haven't really fully captured or fully priced in the you know our exit of the um, of of the the kind of the, the virus environment that we've been in and the ones that immediately jump to mind there would be in some of the mortgage and structured areas, um, particularly the commercial real estate market where um, uh, you know we're still I think behind pricing in the reopening scenario there, uh, not only in um, in office space but also in things like hotels, um, etc. And then. Um, the, the housing market, uh, which is, you know, continues to be um, on, you know, very, very strong. And so if you're looking at residential credit risk or uh, refinancing risk in those areas, there's some opportunity in that space well where you can kind of avoid interest rate exposure but maybe capture a spread that's, that's, uh, that, that's still more attractive than what you might find in, in let's say, the, the investment-grade corporate market. Thank you for that, Mike and Bill. And Leslie, I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of how investors should approach the asset class. I know previously we've spoken on the podcast, a nice play on words, how investors might need to think outside of the bond, so to speak, but would be curious to hear your thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with, with both of what Mike and Bill said. And I think that when you look at the theme here, Overall, it's the rising interest rates, and you know, you know, let's be honest. <clears throat> you know, investors have had this great, you know, tailwind for total returns since the great financial crisis that they, that they've had this decline in, in U.S. interest rates. You know, and now you know you've got a little bit of turning of of the ship, where now interest rates rising could be a bit of a headwind. But it's a balance between capital preservation 
and yield. And, you know, a few things is that just because interest rates are rising, first of all, we don't think, we, we always say this, it's not necessarily the absolute level, but how quickly you get there. And there's no question that seeing that 1.77% in 10-year yields in the first quarter was, even though we were bearish coming into 21, that type, type of velocity was much greater than what we anticipated. But the interest rate market is a bit forward-looking. You know, but with that said, you know, even with that rise, you know, we don't anticipate this huge move in interest rates higher. They're going to go higher. But a lot of, you know, fixed income investors have sort of this stigmatism that if yields rise, therefore I shouldn't own fixed income. And that's not the case, because as we know, over the long term, the biggest contributor to total return is carry in yield, not price. So, you know, again, as long as your horizon is one that's not a month or two months, then, you know, fixed income plays a really big part in your portfolio as part of diversification, you know, lowering volatility, you know, especially for a multi-asset class portfolio. However, going forward, you know, when we talk about, and this is absolutely true when you look at the Fed, I mean, the Fed has gone from a lender of last resort to a permanent fixture within the financial markets. And there might be a bit of, and there obviously is, given where spreads are, a reliance on that continuous type of stimulus, not only in the U.S., but, you know, globally. And, you know, it just, you know, interest rates are globalized now. It's not just about U.S. And, you know, we are anticipating a recovery in Europe in the second half of the year that could help push interest rates higher. But we don't think it's going to be this, this catalyst to fixed income. And a fixed income is a big part of, of your overall diversified portfolio. And I know later in the conversation, we'll get into asset allocation, Dan. So I'll sort of save that for at that time. Perfect. Appreciate that, Leslie. Maybe we can jump around a bit, just given where the conversation is going. Mike and Bill, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on rates, maybe in terms of how we got to where we are today so quickly relative to where we were at the beginning of 2021. And maybe Maybe you can expand a bit on your rate outlook for the near to medium term and the factors that might drive it. I think everyone was somewhat shocked by the pace of the move by February and March. Um, and, and a lot of it is, I guess, related to the news on the vaccines and the success of the rollout strategy there has been a very helpful element to this. In addition, the policy support is extraordinary. You've never had fiscal policy moving in line with monetary policy for decades here. And I think those two things were very powerful antidotes to you know, the concerns around the lower for longer uh, world. Now, you know, when, you, when you think about interest rates in the market today, everyone focuses on nominal yields. You can look at nominal yield, but nominal yields are really a reflection of inflation expectations and real growth that's priced into the market. And, and when you break the nominal yield into those two categories, what you recognize is the market is pricing in extremes in both. On the inflation side, the, the views around the short-run dynamics here are we've got all this excess capital, we've got some supply chain issues, demand is going to be very strong and we won't be able to meet it. You know, it's, for the, for the monetarists out there, if they still uh, exist, that is only resolved by higher prices. And, and I think the market's got that correct in, in terms of uh, the, the, uh, the way it's going to play out, meaning the inflation expectations over the short run here are extraordinarily elevated relative to you know, the Fed's target. But over time, when you think about a five-year or a 10-year uh, horizon, the market's more uh, 
incredibly believing that the Fed can, you know, whatever, look through the surge that we're about to see and is trying to price in, you know, the, the Fed's new uh, framework out there. So for, for, from our perspective, the steepening of the yield curve is, is somewhat reflective of certain asset market pricing. The back end of the yield curve is trying to price in what the long-run equilibrium is going to be. Uh, and, and the front end of the, uh, the yield curve is controlled by the Fed. And so the front of the yield curve is really yet to be reopened. The back end of the yield curve is looking for the equilibrium that will ultimately resolve. Just like in certain asset markets, the corporate credit market is already on the we're fully reopened phase and in structured credit. It's still because it's an asset class that suffered the most from the consequences of social distancing. There's still some risk premium there that we think is, is quite attractive. So our views on rates are there's going to be, they're going to have to be higher uh, here. Um, I think you need, I think you need more global support for rates to go higher, meaning it's the U S rate structure right now, at least among developed economies is, is very high, even on a hedge basis. And it's only so far it can go before uh, overseas investors start asset allocating into the treasury market. However, now that Europe's starting to uh, improve their vaccination program, the growth outlook for Europe is improving fairly sharply. And we would need, we think we need support globally, uh, particularly with Europe. If, If Europe's rate structure starts to lift, that will help lift U.S. rates as well. Uh, that's a you know, quick summary. Yeah, I, d- I don't have a lot to add. Mike and I were just on a uh, on a on a risk and risk markets and and rate uh, strategy meeting just before we jumped on this call. Um, and I just I think that you know the only thing that I would add would be that you know higher rates can are healthier here, right? It's it's a sign that there's repair in the system that's come through, and whether it's a um, uh, an inflation outlook um, that's being driven by um, you know, some labor shortages or um, the policy mix that's out there with all the government spending that we've been seeing across the board, uh, across the world, uh, in support of the virus, etc. Or it's being driven by a growth scenario, real growth scenario that looks healthier going forward. Um, we've been so used to this, you know, very, very, very low rate structure that I think that, you know, when, one thing that you shouldn't lose track of is that, um, you know, a slightly higher rate structure from here uh, is sign of repair and, and normalcy um, going forward and something that, you know, you should expect. Leslie, anything here you'd like to expand on with respect to your rate outlook? And I would be curious to hear, Leslie, about your inflation expectations over the balance of 2021 as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know all the commentary has been great. I think, and I think, Dan, what you hit on in terms of these inflation expectations is very, very important because it's interesting. I mean, when we look at things like the tips market and the break-even inflation rates and what they're currently pricing in right now in the short end, which are probably more highly correlated to sentiment, commodities, you know, and short-term inflation outlook, you know, they're already pricing in a five-year, you know, inflation almost 2.7, right? And so, and this has pushed that real yield that was discussed earlier in the five-year to like a negative 1.8 or negative 1.9, which are historically low levels. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, I personally think that's very full, you know, in terms of a real yield standpoint. And I do believe that if, in fact, the economy believes that this inflation is coming in, as shown by the break-even, the nominal yields should not be as low as they are, and they should move up. 
Now, when we say move up, we're not saying that we're going to go back to that 324 we saw in the fall of 2018, but, you know, interest rates should move higher. And, you know, a lot of concern used to be about, well, if interest rate moves higher, what happens to the mortgage rate? Is it restrictive to the consumer? But listen, household balance sheets are very strong. Home price appreciation is off the charts. So we, we know really what's happening there in terms of the supply-demand imbalance. So we do think that interest rates will move higher. But this year, we don't see a huge, I would say, catalyst higher because there still are a lot of cloudiness within the data that we need to go through. And I'm not just talking about the word transitory, which we've all heard about. Uh, but look, there's no question. If you look at things like commodities, you know, year over year, it's had its, its highest spike in the last, the last, you know, 30, 40 years, but it's starting from a very low base. You know, these you've had a lot of compensation in terms of employment benefits, which aren't going to expire until September. So there's a lot of sort of cloudiness in the, in the data right here in terms of saying whether or not we believe inflation will be really for the longer term. Um, and there are obviously, as we've talked about, um, you know, structural changes that are permanent, whether it's technology or aging demographics, that sort of keeps us from believing that 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 the uh, that inflation is going to be this large overshoot. And, you know, as we've always said, it's much easier for the Fed to curtail inflation than it is to create it. But we just don't think this is going to be a 2021 issue. So we think inflation will modestly rise. It's not going to be a point of concern. And we also think that interest rates will modestly rise in 2021, but it's not going to be the spike higher from the information that we have right now. So maybe we can stick with risks for a few more moments, as we've pointed out, and Leslie, you just emphasized inflation being among the chief risks at the moment on the minds of investors. Maybe looking out over the next six months or so, Bill, Mike, what are some notable risks that you'll be watching out for in particular? It is quite striking, the, the, the framework today, uh, given all the noise in the economic data from a year ago versus today, and the changes in the policy framework. These are things that we haven't yet seen before in you know, many of these, in, many of our current investing lives. Um, and, and so there's a high degree of uncertainty that we're going to be just dealing with for the next couple months. Um, but you know, for, for me, when I think about it, because of the extremeness of the policy, that policy mistake is probably number one in, in my mind as a, as a concern. Um, the Fed can they stick to their guns and look through the inflation surge we're about to see and say, nope, we're still going to you know, hold our course here? Uh, and, and some of that is, um, you know, if, if, if they can't, and you can see fracturing on the Fed, at least from some of the governors, they are concerned. I mean, Yellen's comment yesterday was that a slip of the tongue around, hey, look, we may need to raise rates. And then she walked that back. There's definitely... Uh, a concern around, hey, if they need to change course before um, the market expects, given you know how Paul has been very uh, consistent, that could be disruptive for risky assets. And then the other side of it would be, well, let's assume that they stick out the the, the course like they they lay it out. We don't have the, the 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 macro gaps that we normally have with this level of policy support. We don't have an out. We won't have an output gap by the end of this year. Um, ideally, the Fed gets inflation to where they need it to be, and given the expectations for growth this year and next, you know, I, I think the labor market will more than absorb you know, the 8.5 million remaining jobs out there. The question is, well, then why are you, you know, tapering so slowly and, and, and holding rates so low? So for us, you know, policy mistake is a big, a bi- a big item. Um, in, in addition, we have 
you know, three senior leaders of the Fed board, their terms expire. Randy Quarles, uh, Powell, and Clarida, uh, November, February, and March, they may not be here. And, and those are three big, vo- at least two of those are huge voices in the current policy stance. And so who replaces them? Do they get an extension? What's, what does the view of policy uh, mean when we get these new individuals? I think that the next thing for me is expectations. People have a lot of expectations around the pace of growth and inflation, and we don't know how that excess savings is going to be spent. We, we, we kind of have some sense of where, what, 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 which balance sheets it sits on, but some of those savings um, were uh, forced savings on wealthy balance sheets. They don't need to go out and spend that money right away. And so if, if the expectation extends over you know, eight months instead of four months, how does the market react to, to, to that? Uh, and, the, and the last thing I point out is, Usually when you get rates this low, leverage is a way that investors solve that problem. And I think with the uh, framework in place today, it's going to lead to higher macro uncertainty, which ultimately will translate into higher uh, risky asset volatility as well. Those are my concerns. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree that you know a policy mistake is, is definitely in the cards of a point of concern, given the fact that Obviously, you know, rightfully wrong, absolutely so. They're they're not going to move on projections. They're going to wait for the data. And the concern is that they might wait a little bit too long. And pushing forward, the rate hike is really is, is not so much the issue. The issue is, you know, how much they have to hike by. So, in other words, whether it's going to be December of twenty two or or Jan or February of twenty three, the first rate hike is not is not the point of concern. The point of concern is that it's not in these little small 25 basis point increments that the market seems to be priced in and it goes to 50 and you know that consecutively higher so that is definitely a point of concern in terms of you know risk not only the fixed income market but obviously to the equity market as well and and i'm going to revert back to what we mentioned earlier is that how that impacts or that five-year and that and that and the negative real yields within that five-year area that are very much a you know staple in terms of looking at borrowing costs so again, that that is that risk to see that shoot up higher in 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 that in that part of the curve, and if the fact and the fact that Fed simply may wait too long for the data um, before they actually t- take action. So I know at this point we're beginning to come to the end of our time together for today. And Mike, Bill, Leslie, thank you for covering all of the ground that you have thus far with our listeners, our clients. Maybe we could end on allocation. Hear your thoughts when it comes to positioning, accounting for all that you've covered with us. Leslie, perhaps we could provide our guests, uh, Bill Coley, Mike Som, with the final word there. But I'll ask you, Leslie, what are your current allocation preferences when it comes to fixed income? Yeah, you know, we're asked very often and rightfully so because it hasn't been a topic for such a long time. You know, what do I do with inflation, you know, within fixed income? And, you know, there's, there's a couple avenues which we have taken. And again, we do anticipate inflation to go higher, but we don't think it's going to be this catalyst that some um, strategists are making this out to be. But, you know, our positioning is geared towards more of the higher inflation and slightly higher int- and higher interest rates. So we really have a preferred weighting right now in terms of a type of a barbell in two main sectors. One is, was it, one is in the senior loan side, which we actually put on in, in May of 2020 and have held because of the recovery and because we had felt that all the stimulus would push rates higher and, you know, all of these defaults and concerns that we were having over those pandemic, you know, impaired areas 
would start to reverse, and particularly within the CLO market would also start to reverse. So we like the floating rate nature. We still like it. Um, there's no question that the asset class on the price basis we would consider full. Um, however, we think it is, it is very good carry. We think defaults will, will decline going forward, and we like the floating rate nature. We also like the CMBS market. You know, if you think inflation is going to be an issue, then, you know, it's CMBS is, are, are the areas of where you should, you know, allocate in terms of return going forward. But again, I mean, you know, as everyone knows, and I'm sure <laughs> that Michael Bill will say this as well, you know, you do, you need to do your, your due diligence. We've, we've had a large recovery in, in the, at, in the CMBS area. You know, triple B, triple B minus are still cheap to high yield, but you really need to pick your sectors because this is going to be, Although a recovery, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, but we do like the CMBS sector. You know, it, it's returned, it's, it's come back in terms of spread quite a bit. But, you know, those would be the two main areas that we like in terms of our allocation with the expectation that, you know, interest rates gradually rise and inflation, you know, starts to rear its head, but not to a point where it is a concern for things like the equity markets or you know, large moving interest rates higher. So, you know, senior loans and CMBS are two main asset classes that we like right now. Thank you for that, Leslie. And then to close out, Bill, Mike, from Putnam's vantage point, what's your guidance when it comes to positioning within fixed income right now? Yeah, I think we agree a lot with uh, Leslie's view on those two assets, for sure. I think the CLO market and, and the levered loan market itself um, still offers some risk premium. It's, it's, as she says, it's fully priced, but when, when you go to the, the, the high yield debt markets, it's, it's still got a risk premium there that the high yield debt market doesn't have, and obviously the floating rate side of that helps a lot. Uh, CLOs clearly are back in demand, a massive amount of issuance, and it was, though the Cov Light story was a concern last year, it also ended up being a benefit as you know, companies had a lot more flexibility to deal with you know, the balance sheets in, in ways that they otherwise wouldn't have if they had ceded more control to the investors themselves. On commercial real estate, same sort of story. It is a story game, uh, but property metrics here are rebounding fairly sharply. On you know, the troubled assets are clearly hotels with a daily lease rate, the malls, and and office concerns. Um, th- those are the property metrics for those are changing fairly quickly right now. Uh, so I, you know, I, there, there's a way to look through and do your fundamental work there, uh, but there, there's a lot of value there. If, you know, you, you have the ability to look through on a loan-level basis like we do. I would also point to prepayments. I think you know, the surge in home prices here um, is somewhat a concern. It gives people the ability to do the takeout uh, equity game that they did uh, leading up to the prior uh, great financial crisis in 2008. But the fundamentals and the underwriting is just so different. And there's a lot of good stories there. And when you really look through the return generation for prepayment assets, they are the least correlated with the credit market. So you still have some risk premium there because rates are low and refinancings did spike. So we like that. We're pretty good at evaluating where the models are going to be right and wrong. And it's a really good diversifier uh, in the system. And I, I guess I'd add one more uh, dimension to this. It's when, when you really get to, hey, look, I need more yield. The inclination is, you know, go down in the cap structure. The credit curve has flattened very significantly uh, in high yield, so much so that you know when you look at triple C's, you know the valuation uh, while spreads are high, the valuations there are very stretched. Another way to play the game of uh, getting your return is if you look at how triple C's compare versus converts. The convertible market has a very different 
profile of industries than, than the high-yield triple C market. And on a risk-adjusted basis, if you just say, hey, look, I'll, I'll buy converts and I'll buy them so that I have the same return volatility that the triple C market does, if you ever do long converts and short triple Cs, what you'll see is converts are just a better risk-adjusted asset class, and I don't have to reach into some of these distressed balance sheets where valuations are stretched, and I get a slightly different industry mix. And, and so we like that as a replacement for corporate credit uh, in distress, uh, from, from a return-seeking mode, not as a substitute for distress, but as a, as a substitute for credit beta. We like that as a, a choice. Well, Bill, Mike, Leslie, greatly appreciate your timely insights as well as your actionable guidance. Uh, Bill, all the best to you in your retirement. It has been a pleasure partnering with you on these segments over the past few years. Uh, Mike, looking forward to having you on again with us soon. And Leslie, I'm sure you'll join us on a Top of the Morning podcast in the coming weeks. But uh, Leslie, Bill, Mike, Thank you again for everything today. It was great catching up with you all. Thanks, Dan. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dan. Absolutely. And again, today we have been joined by Leslie Falconio, a senior fixed income strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Bill Coley and Mike Somm, co-chief investment officers for fixed income with Putnam Investments. UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.